Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. We recorded the episode just a few hours after the January 6th committee gave its possibly last public hearing, and I am very pleased to have Miles Taylor as my guest. Miles, of course, worked in the Trump administration, left in disgust, and penned the book Anonymous about the real truth of the Trump White House. I could not think of a better guest for today to offer personal insight into why this was such a significant hearing. And I am grateful that Miles was literally able to run without pause from Nicole Wallace's show today, straight to his kitchen to bake and discuss today's hearings and the future of domestic terrorism in this country. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy the show. I feel like we've really already started this podcast because you're coming in hot about your. Let's let's go straight in. Let's just go let's straight go straight in. in. Um, <laughs> so let me welcome everybody straight in. We went into the deep end, not even like sticking feet in in the shallow end on the stairs and shivering a little bit. We went into the deep end because <laughs> because Miles Taylor, my guest today, literally went leaping off the high dive of MSNBC into I don't know my backyard swimming pool. So thank you for being here today on this nutso day, as you yourself said, except you said, I think you used the word that you were a little hot about it all. And uh, yeah, that's the way I've, I've felt about many of these. And we're here today to not to be measured, but to speak out how we're feeling, because I think that's really, that was my big takeaway from today. You know, it's been my big takeaway every day because I'm sort of, you know, an emotional nutcase, but Aren't we Thank all you. now? Aren't, aren't we all feeling that way? <laughs> really, like I say all the time, if if we could just put the whole country on the therapist couch, America would just like break down in tears in the middle of the session, and the therapist would be like, you know, but what does it ultimately go back to? And 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 America would be like, it's our mother, and it would be Britain, and we'd be like, it's all Britain's fault. At the it's end all- of the day, this comes back to our parents. It's the fucking British. So the fucking British. <laughs> the Magna Carta could only do so much. And they started us off as like colonialists and whatever. And any moment now, my husband, who's British, will be walking through the door. So oh, I man, just I'll check him, myself. Tell, not, tell him not to listen to this episode. No, I mean, it's his not. I don't blame him really for that. So you're here today in your capacity as having served in the Bush and Trump White Houses, having said, see ya to the Trump White House when you were, after having been chief of staff at the DHS, you wrote a book called by a man named Anonymous. You turned out to be anonymous. So it's always nice to meet an anonymous. And Many days I wish I still was. <laughs> we can talk about that in a little bit later. And we're here on this incredibly crazy day because the morning started with the Parkland verdict. Talk about emotional. What a maelstrom of emotion that brings up. And, you know, and then straight into this January 6th hearing. So it, it was a very like all of America's adrenal glands who are paying attention must be giant today is really what I take away. But we've brought you here to talk, but also to do some self-soothing with cookies, really. 
you have made the suggestion of what we were going to make today. And it is just such a perfect antidote for today. It is. They are Taylor Swift's chai cookies. <laughs> Go Taylor. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm super excited about this. One, because I think the cookies sound good. But um, I'm actually a, a huge Taylor Swift fan. Huge, huge, huge Taylor Swift fan. I think her music is remarkable. I think she's uh, genuinely just one of the greatest living songwriters. She is a fucking genius. And she's got an album coming out this month. She's got a yes, new album does. dropping in, in uh, a week tomorrow at midnight. And we are eagerly awaiting for that. And so I saw that she had this recipe for Taylor Swift's chai tea cookies. Good to hear about everybody is very pleased about Taylor Swift's new album. And maybe like the next, our next big goal will be to have you and Taylor Swift. I mean, I'd like to be there baking cookies together. Marissa, make my dream come true. There is a sort of a cosmic connection in that. Incidentally, Taylor Swift was branded sort of like persona non grata inside the Trump administration because she was obviously, as, as you would expect her to be, yeah. unsupportive of the twice impeached, disgraced president. And, uh, and, and one of my former colleagues, Olivia Troy, who worked in the White House and was detailed over there from DHS, she actually got in trouble one day for listening to Taylor Swift in her office. And someone came in and said, do you want to get fired? You can't play that stuff here. <laughs> so I take extra pleasure that we're going to be talking about these issues today. And we're baking Taylor's cookies because hell yeah, these are never Trump cookies, baby. <laughs> exactly. Never Trump cookies. And who in the White House, other than like you and maybe three other people, would have identified Taylor Swift's music? That's a really good question. Uh, probably, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to caveat that with. Okay. When she was a country star, they probably knew her as a country star. But, you know, as has become very popular in Republican circles, when a female country music star starts speaking her mind, you disavow her, you stop playing her music, you kick her off the radio. So in keeping with that tradition, Taylor Swift was, was blacklisted. Yeah, I mean, you know, I should just let you take over the rest of the podcast because really maybe women should just be seen and not heard. Yeah, Marissa, could you just maybe turn your video and audio off? Because I'm going to take control here as an absolutely terrible baker. You should have seen me before I jumped on. You very graciously, your listeners should know, you very graciously gave me a few minutes to prepare. And like I said, my fiance, Hannah, was watching me. I'm going to show you. Yeah. She was like watching me portion out the ingredients and looking at me like, you don't know how to do this. So I don't know how to bake anything. And then I realized... As we were getting ready, I looked at the instructions for these cookies and we're supposed to leave the dough to chill for like an hour in the fridge. There's no yeah. way that's going to happen. So no we'll way. just, I don't know, we'll wing it and I'll take your <laughs> instruction on how we should approach it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what I did with these cookies and they are, as we said, chai cookies. Here's some I baked earlier. That's always like what they do on the fancy cookie shows, right? Here's some Whoa. I baked earlier. And for the listeners at home, since there is no real video... They're a delicious looking flat butter like cookie. And mine have little speckles of ground up chai tea. I have very, it's, it's the recipe calls for opening up chai tea bag. And I have very fancy. I don't have it in a jar. I have, I mean, I have it in a jar, not in tea bags. 
made by somebody, yogic chai. Very good. Um, but I had to like spend a lot of time this morning grinding it up. So, but well, and for, and for listeners who are wondering where to find this, it's a, it's everywhere on the web. After she, after she published her recipe, everyone yes. republished it. So you won't have a tough time finding the instructions out there. And I'm glad you said what you said about grinding the tea because Hannah made this suggestion is I have chunky chai that's like in a jar like that. And that's what yeah. I was going to have to do is grind it up. Uh, but then we also have these, you know, little Tazo tea bags that are Perfect. already ground up. So this, I would recommend that for people who don't want to grind that is I, I presume these little tea bags will have very fine grain chai, which will be better to put on the cookies. That's what Taylor's recipe calls for. So you're much closer to Taylor than I am. Damn, See? damn. It's just, it's just, it's just, we should start you mixing some dough. Um, I don't know. Um, I think it requires, I'll, I'll tell you what it requires. And then you mm. can, do you have some sort of mixing device? Or are you just going to use pure brute strength? I do have a mixing device. It kind of depends on if we want the audio of me huffing and puffing. <laughs> mixing or <laughs> listeners if you want to hear a mixer we let's we'll, we'll see how difficult it is we'll start with manual and we may think, shift uh, to automatic <laughs> i think we shall start with manual and then there's some chance it won't be too melty melty so i would cut up your butter and put it into a bowl and start just attacking it with that wooden spoon you had just like grandma that used sounds to. fantastic okay so you want me to take half One. a cup of butter and just plop it in the bowl but I want you to get half a cup of butter is two sticks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. One stick is a quarter cup. Yeah. Oh, I think I have, I think I have a half a cup stick though. I think I have a big butter stick. Really? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's a perfect group. You and I is because you can help me do this better. Yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sort of right. The great thing about you is that you have lots of other skills as well as this. (laughs) Not baking. Don't have that skill yet. Let's let's wait to determine until the end of this process if I have that skill. We'll get there. Yeah. A lot of smushing. A lot of like this. Smushing. Smushing smushing against the side. Pick the bowl up and sort of smear it against your very nice sweater. (laughs) <laughs> you know the, the great thing uh we're also going to give fashion advice on this podcast Definitely. i have learned late in life that wearing black frequently is fantastic because you can spill unless it's unless it's baking okay because yeah. baking there's so much powder that it gets on it but mm-hmm. basically everything else you can spill on black and no one has any idea it's fantastic so my closet now is mostly just like black and dark dark blue clothes so that i can spill all over myself so that's that's your fashion advice today folks absolutely because if you wear a white shirt you're will automatically spill coffee first thing on your shirt in the morning like the first thing that you'll do so that's why you wear a black sweater a black shirt and that way no one can see it it's really it's it's one of my top tips um (laughs) it's karma throw your white shirts out everyone throw them out (laughs) or just cover them up with a black sweater um, yeah. <laughs> one of the other things that you have done recently before we dive in is um, um, you decided that it was, yeah, just keep smushing that. 
that you have decided <laughs> that we needed another political party in this country. I don't know why you had that idea, but <laughs> and so forward. Are we calling it? A, yeah. We call it a political party. What is the purpose of forward for those? It uneducated? is so. You know, here's the real. Real is I've been a Republican my whole life, and I was really hopeful after. Donald Trump was defeated, that the GOP would swing back the rational direction. Uh, and, and I'm very, to be clear, very ideologically conservative, uh, more aptly described as a libertarian. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a student of von Mises and Friedrich Hayek and all of these libertarian philosophers. And so that's where I find myself on the political spectrum. But during the course of the Trump administration, it became very obvious that the Republican Party was not adhering to what I would characterize as the pillars of conservatism, free minds, free markets, free people. And in fact, mm -hmm. it was doing the opposite. It was opposed to free minds. It was opposed to free markets. It was opposed to freedom and democracy. A lot of people like me hoped that the pendulum would swing back. It's become evident to me that the underlying forces that have caused the Republican Party to be overtaken by the MAGA movement are not the type of thing that one, two, three, or four elections can fix. And that I don't have a home in the GOP anymore. Now, to be clear, I don't think I have a home in the Democratic Party. I do worry about the Democratic Party lurching further to the left. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not welcoming the libertarians like me. I don't have a home in the Republican Party. Um, so frankly, my decision to participate in Forward, frankly, didn't have anything to do with anyone else but me. Very selfishly, I wanted a home. <laughs> I wanted a new home. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there weren't just thousands, but millions of people who wanted a new home also and mm -hmm. are looking for a non-extremist political party. That's really all forward is, is the anti-extremist political party. We don't agree with the far left. We certainly don't agree with the far right. And we want to find common sense solutions. Now, what does that mean now for these midterm yeah. elections? We don't have any candidates on the ballot. So what we're doing this cycle is the forward party is going and doing something that no other political party in America is doing, and that is endorsing candidates of other parties. So we are endorsing principled Democrats, the handful of principled Republicans that are left, and several independents for office this cycle, for the Senate and the House, really with the goal of keeping big lie extremists from taking power in Washington. So yeah, we're going to go out there and we've got forward volunteers, tens of thousands of them across all 50 states, and we're going to go try to help Basically, the good guys beat the bad guys. And that's not just this cycle. In future cycles, if there's not a good guy in a race, right. we're going to go run a forward candidate against maybe a big lie extremist. But if there is, we won't necessarily run a candidate. We may go endorse the Democrat in the race because they're best equipped to beat the bad guy in that case. That's what's really exciting about it to me is uh -huh. creating a party that's willing to cross itself party lines. So we'll see, but we won't have candidates on the ballot line as forward candidates until uh, 2024. That's um, soon enough. The, um, I mean, soon. The one of the things that I found really remarkable, and I, I don't actually have the actual number near me, but the number of people running for seats locally and at mm -hmm. the state and, and local state house and Senate levels who are yep. big lie supporters is enormous. Yeah, the I've been I, I feel like since January 6th, I've been looking for one stat to tell this whole story. I'm a numbers guy. And, 
you know, I end up with five stats here and six statistics there, and I'll use them on TV or radio. And then the other week, the uh, the blog 538 blog put out just a mind-blowing statistic, and it was that 60% of Americans will have an election denier on their ballot in November. And that, to me, summed it all up. It summed up this massive sea change in American politics, where now the majority of the country on their ballot is going to have someone they can vote for who believes Joe Biden's not the legitimate president, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, all of these things that are very provably false. And I don't say that as just a a bystander or an onlooker. For a period of time, I oversaw the federal government's election security efforts. That was my job, was to put in place. And by the way, during the Trump administration, I did this job for Donald Trump, which was to make sure that the 2020 elections were the most secure elections in modern history. And you and know they what? Were. <laughs> they were. They were. And you were. know who actually, I don't, I don't want to give Donald Trump credit for it, but because it drives him crazy, it happened on his watch. The reason we're able to say the 2020 elections were the most secure, the most free mm-hmm. and fair, was because during that administration, we put in place an end-to-end effort to secure them after 2016 and Russian interference. Now, Trump did not support those efforts. Largely, it happened despite him and not because of him. As officials worked on these plans, Mm -hmm. uh, even though Trump didn't want to hear about it, but it happened during his administration. Yet we still have tens of millions of people who now believe this lie that the election was stolen. That's very scary to me. And that 60% number, I think, says it all. And it explains why, at least for me personally, we can't fall into this comforting notion that, well, it's all just going to swing back to the center. Like it's just, it's, it, it'll just go back to normal. This is more than a blip on the radar. And I'll be the first to say, I foolishly thought Donald Trump was just a blip on the radar and that we would only have to endure it for a few years and then we could go back to the way things were. And, and it's not that. And, and I, you know, I came to that conclusion through very hard experience. And hard experience in while you were in the administration, or was it sort of a, was it a gradual thing? Like every day, um, every way, and you woke up at three in the morning or and went, oh my God, or was it something else? Can you, you know, kind of all of, kind of all of the above. I mean, you know, none of us were idiots. Everyone knew who Donald Trump was going in. If someone tries to act like they went into the Trump administration and they were shocked. They were horrified. They clutched their pearls. They couldn't even believe he was such a bad man. Please. Like, you know, I call bullshit on that. It was Mm -hmm. evident this was a deeply immoral, narcissistic, very bad man. But that's actually why a lot of the people, at least I respected, did Mm -hmm. go in. So some folks may love him. Some folks may hate him. But one of my mentors in this town, one of the people that I still look up to was John Kelly, four-star Marine general from U.S. Southern Command. He didn't know Donald Trump from from Taylor Swift. Um, (laughs) But Kelly knew that this guy was really untested. And he was very, very worried about the stability of the federal government. Um, I didn't have any interest in going into the Trump administration, but I did have an interest in working for John Kelly. And when I knew that he saw his role as a safeguarding democracy sort of role in there, 
uh, I wanted to be a part of that. So I knew what I was walking into where I was very, very misguided and where Kelly was misguided, where all of the so-called adults were misguided in the administration is thinking that that could keep him in check. We were totally and completely wrong in thinking that a group of unelected bureaucrats could keep a rogue president in check. And, and I, I very much bear responsibility for that because one of my biggest regrets is I wish I had called that out Mm-hmm. sooner. And instead, and I'm probably jumping ahead in your questions, instead, you know, I put out an anonymous op-ed that basically said, don't worry, America, the adults are in the room. They know the president's crazy. And that's scary, but they're trying to keep him in check. I was totally fucking wrong about that. I was mm-hmm. wrong about that because all Trump needed to do was systematically get rid of those adults and then take control. And that's literally what he did. I mean, he did it, ironically, within days of the op-ed, he was firing senior officials. After the midterm elections, he was taking people out. My thesis in that opinion piece was totally and completely blown to shreds by Donald Trump. And I have a lot of regret about that because I I think if I could go back in time, what I would have done is gone and just blown the roof off of it in my own name at that time and said, don't count on the adults on the inside. The only way to beat this guy is we've got to go beat him at the ballot box. And like, I know the election's two years away, but we need to start fighting now because we only just barely defeated Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at it statistically, because of a handful of well-placed votes in key swing states, he was defeated. I mean, it was down to, I think it's 50 or 60,000 key swing votes in eight states cost Trump the presidency. That easily could have swung the other direction, way too close for comfort. Um, The thing that I felt from the beginning of his presidency, and this isn't to go no, 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 poo-poo because I'm a mature adult, but um, having- You did just say (laughs) poo-poo. I I said nana, nana, poo-poo, so there's a whole thing. (laughs) Um, I told you this was Uh, (laughs) R-rated. Someone said poo-poo in the January 6th select committee hearing today on a tape, which by the way- is a way more serious hearing than this, but there was a moment where Nancy Pelosi says poo-poo because she was suggesting that the the insurrectionists were defecating in the Capitol. And I got to be honest, I, I like blurted out laughing because I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Why did I, they air that? Um, later, I think she uses, or before that, she uses the word defecate. And I was like, that, how, the, the fact that she had it all together so well that she could say defecate and not poo-poo or shit or anything. But I guess so I missed the earlier part where she yeah. said poo-poo. Um, I mean, she is a mother Sorry. of five and a grandmother. That's right. So That's right. She's, she knows poo-poo when she sees it. Um, the thing I was going to say is the thing that concerned me from, I mean, besides the fact that I had a sense of who Donald Trump was, having lived in New York City and worked for Spy Magazine and just really watched him for a long, long time and never heard a good story about him ever, was the fact that he brought his family in with him from the very start. He always had a, um, what's his face? And uh, I've really blanked his name. You know who I mean? Uh, Jared. Jared. Jared and Ivanka right near him. And then Mm -hmm. the other outliers were various sons, not Tiffany, not Baron, but, you know. 
And that to me was like his way of protecting himself from one people seeing what he was really like, as in not so completely together in the brain and also trying to have a face of normalcy, which was Ivanka and Jared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, I have complicated views on this and I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't think it's right or appropriate that the president president of the United States brought his family members into the White House. I did too many conflicts of interest. Other presidents have done it of both parties. That said, I have to I have to be honest. I don't have terribly negative feelings about Jared and Ivanka. I don't know them well personally, but here's why. Because when push came to shove on a very bad policy, you actually could count on them to talk Trump off the ledge. So, I mean, look, I agree. Jared Navanka, problematic. I, I could go on for days about how it was bad for government that on any given day, Jared Kushner might be pretending to be the secretary of state. And then he's the attorney general. And then he's the Secretary of Homeland Security. And I will tell you, each of those cabinet secretaries were constantly frustrated that Jared was doing their jobs for them and not telling them about things like phone calls with foreign leaders and other things that affected the real functions of government. So lots of problems there with the way the White House was structured. But if there was something truly egregious that Trump wanted to do, or worse, had done, you often could count on them being able to help out. And and one example is the family separation policy, is Mm -hmm. that was the instance, at least in my mind, where it became glaringly obvious that the efforts to put Trump's bad ideas back in the box wasn't fucking working. Because even if you said no, he was going to go forward with it anyway. And I remember with that episode, one of the people that the Secretary of Homeland Security went to, I mean, she spoke to Jared and Ivanka about it to get them to help convince the president to issue an executive order to end the policy. And a chorus of voices went to Trump to convince him to do that. But I think they were instrumental in helping to convince him. There were other episodes like that, you know, Trump wanting to pull out of NATO or a treaty where they would be helpful in stopping him. So, you know, again, I, 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 I feel like it's important to say that because there were as, as much as I don't like the fact that they were in the White House, there were times where even they were a check on their father-in-law. But by me saying that they were there um, and that it raised concerns for me, it raised concerns for it actually it raised concerns that he would bring these people without experience in. But truly, oh, total. It, it let me sleep a little better at night knowing that there were vaguely more rational people in there or more. And I can't even believe we're saying that we slept better at night because Jared and Ivanka were in the White House. Like how how backwards is that? That's how crazy the thing got is that you're hoping that a somewhat rational family member around him is going to keep him from something like nuclear war. And and sometimes that that was the case. Right. And, um, you know, it sounds like some sort of like George the third. 
I yeah. think that you need to. Add, how's the butter going there? Let's pause for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I were, <laughs> it's in there. Yeah, that's good. Um, you should add. I'm going to redo the recipe for you, just because you okay. have to mix it all by hand, and I don't want you to end up with this, vegetable this oil. This is this is this is what happens when someone very very kind and more experienced sees another person struggling. Is they <laughs> in the gentle way that you just did say. I have adjusted this for you. <laughs> I've got the, uh, the, and the, the elementary is, version. The truth is I'm going to rewrite this recipe and it's going to look like this too, because the way this recipe is written is a little cuckoo for coconut. Um, speaking of the Trump administration, the I would add both sugars now, the half cup both of white sugars. sugar and the half yeah. cup of powdered sugar, the powdered sugar, helping it to be a very crumbly, delicious cookie. I would using your big, big strength. Uh, you're not just strong in your brain. You're strong in your arms. Big strength. Big strength. Hulk smash to do this. Um, Marissa, those- I, I, I have yes. a baking question for you. If the butter is, let's describe it like the consistency of Play-Doh. Mm-hmm. Do I want it to be easier to mix? Do I want to soften it by putting it in the microwave or is that good? No, no, I've given him the no. I've, I've put out my hands, people, and I've gone, no, stop. I'm going to recommend to folks that they make sure to taste what they're going to pour into the bowl to make so they know it's not flour and that it's powdered sugar. Powdered sugar. That's powdered sugar. See, I, I almost dumped the flour in first. So you want me to put both sugars in with the butter? Both sugars in. And then, See, that's and then start move. going at it. That's right. Just start beating the heck out of it. All those awesome. feelings that you were having earlier today, <laughs> now you can work yeah. through them. So let's talk a little bit about earlier today. Um, yeah, yeah. And so there, why was this a significant hearing? Was this a, I believe this was a significant hearing, but why was it to you? What were your big takeaways? So, well, two, there's two answers. I'll, I'll give you the, uh, I'll give you kind of the talking point, you know, in official Washington, why I think it was yes. significant. And the and the personal one and and kind of the talking point answer is, and I and I mean this it's it's not just a talking point is I think that the committee January sixth select committee very very effectively brought all the threads of their investigation together mm-hmm. and I was talking on the phone earlier today with someone who's another person who quit the Trump administration uh, and and you know went out against Donald Trump. And the two of us in our conversation agreed that what was so compelling about what the committee did is we think they not only convinced, hopefully they convinced some of the American people of uh, what really happened, the plot to overturn the election. But more importantly, it appears that they convinced the U.S. Justice Department to see the big picture again. Now, none of us, to be clear, have any insight Outside of, I think, what we see in the media about what's happening in the Department of Justice investigation. But if you believe leaks in the media from several weeks ago, several months ago now, Merrick Garland himself watched the last committee hearing before Congress went on recess in August. And reporting showed that he was very, very affected by the proceedings. And in fact, the Justice Department found out some things in the presentation that they didn't realize. And as a result, reportedly accelerated their investigation. And I think when you see all of those threads being brought together, 
it's extremely compelling. Mm -hmm. If you're at the Department of Justice, you see that and you think, oh my God, there is enough evidence to take this into a courtroom, to convince a jury, and to actually get someone convicted on these potential charges of having obstructed a proceeding of Congress or whatever charges they end up bringing against Trump's associates or even the ex-president himself. So short answer is, I, I think this was one of the, I've, I've worked on a lot of congressional committees. I've run a lot of hearings. I honestly think this was one of the most compelling, most effective congressional hearings I have ever seen. I think the staff of the select committee has been extraordinary. Mm. Um, and, and they tied it together in a really, really compelling way, not just from a storytelling standpoint, but more officially in supporting and buttressing the criminal referral that we suspect they're going to make to the Justice Department. And they said today that there would be multiple criminal referrals from this investigation. I think they made a powerful case for why. So look, that's the official answer is I just, I think they, they showed with this capstone hearing very convincingly that the plot to overturn the election was a nationwide 50 state conspiracy centrally directed by the president of the United States. That I think hit home. The personal answer of why it was so affecting today is, you know, I hate the word triggering. I really do because people reflexively associate it with like college students who don't want to talk about issues they don't like in the classroom because they're triggered. Right. But there's the, the words meaningful for a reason is because suddenly something can have emotional affect on you that you didn't expect. And I've watched all of these hearings, like I said, at the top end, but none has so rocked me like this. For some reason, it really just transported me back to that day. And the only other time I felt as gut punched as I did on January 6th was like 9-11. I mean, we mm-hmm. all remember watching some of us watched in real time, you know, on television as the towers were hit. And then there were reports of a bomb at the State Department, but it wasn't a bomb. It was right. the Pentagon hit. And just the, 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 that whole experience resulted for a lot of people in post-traumatic stress. And, and I think for many I watched, Americans- I watched the towers actually, I watched the towers actually be hit by the second plane. I was on the roof of my building in New York. And we just, we, we went up to see the fire in the first tower because we'd heard that there was fire and we didn't really have a clue what was going on. And then as we watched, I saw this plane kind of come close to the second tower. And the next thing you knew, it disappeared into the building. But you had no, like, there was no kind of way to place that in reality, this idea that this was happening or as the plane was coming towards the building, I wasn't thinking, oh, look, there's another terrorist plane because well, who thought that way? Well, you know, uh, there's one thing I want to say on that. And by the way, I will I will just I'll hit pause on my comment to say it's kind of cool at this point. If you've done what Marissa said, I suspect that your mix should start to look identical to mashed potatoes. It looks exactly like mashed potatoes right now. I almost like gritty, could prank gritty. someone into being like, here's mashed potatoes. And they'd be like, oh, it's actually just sugar and butter, which sounds kind of delicious. Um, it should be getting a little fluffy like mashed potatoes. Just, yes. that, you know, now you could start adding your egg too if you feel that it's fluffy enough. Ooh, I will do that. Yeah. I'm struck by just, you know, what the experience must have been like to be a New Yorker on 9 11. I, I was 
just a Midwestern teenager, but I had been in the towers two weeks beforehand. I was visiting <gasps> New York and I went to the, um, something, what's it called? Windows of the world or something like that. There's oh a restaurant that used to be in the towers. And yeah, I'd been out there visiting my aunt who was living oh. in New York. And, uh, and so it was really powerful for me, like a lot of people in the millennial generation. It's why I went into public service. And my first job was working as a congressional page in the U.S. House. So there's, you know, for 200 years, young teenage messengers have worked on the floor of the House delivering messages and packages for members of Congress. And there's this, uh, this extraordinary, the best bird's eye view of the House chamber is the page desk, which is tucked in the back corner of the chamber. And so I sat there for a school year as a junior in high school, getting to watch Congress in a, a rare moment of unity after 9-11, where Republicans and Democrats were working very, very closely together. I raised that, and I've used that example before, because one of the things that caused me to get emotional on January 6th is this picture came out of ununiformed Capitol Secret Service in suits with guns drawn, trying to protect the doors of the chamber from being breached. And they had moved a desk in front yeah. of the doors. It mm-hmm. was the page desk. In fact, we got confirmation, former pages, that they'd taken the desk that we used to sit at as pages, pushed it in front of the doors of the chamber to keep insurrectionists from coming in. And I get chills saying that because, you know, I went into I went into government because I thought we were going to have to fight foreign enemies and terrorists for decades and decades after 9-11. And it was domestic terrorists that yeah. ended up being the bigger threat to our democracy. And this that desk for me really was, you know, that was probably the most idealistic I'd ever been about government working as a page. And then to see that be the last line of defense against an election being overturned domestically was, it really rocked. It really rocked me. So, I mean, Hannah and I were just talking about that after, after uh, getting off TV is just, again, I go back to the word triggered that it sort of just triggered all of those feelings from that day again. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, but, if I you're mean, listening does- to this podcast, you're like, shit, I didn't sign up for this emotional <laughs> story, but um, but you know, yes. some of you may be living through it too. And, and my recommendation would be make cookies with Marissa to, <laughs> to, sh- to shake the negative fields. Exactly. I, that's kind of my, my thing. I, uh, can't tell you how moving that image is for me. That's se- that scene itself, just as an average person seeing a piece of furniture pushed up against a door you know, and secret service agents with their guns drawn protecting what was going on the inside and then hearing the video of, or the audio of the people saying it's been breached. Absolutely sh- sh- um, nerve wracking um, and, and, and affecting, but to be able to put it in that image of yours where this was like your place of perfect, you know, American experience. And then it became that is just, well, you asked at the top end, <laughs> you made a joke about what I was doing as a 16-year-old. That's what I was doing as a 16-year-old. I mean, that's how old you are when you're a page is I, you know, was probably half the time doing my job and half the time we were playing pranks and being goofballs on the house floor. But that was the, 
you know, whenever I get asked, what's the best job you've ever had? You know, everyone has a reflexive answer to that. Mine is always, oh, congressional pitch. It was the job of my life to get to be there, like in the nerve center, central nervous center of democracy and watch it. And in that window post 9-11, I mean, no one wants to relive 9-11, but you really did, everyone felt like one big family. And it was like that on the House floor. Members of Congress still literally crossed to the aisle, still spent time with each other, still went out to dinners. There was a camaraderie built around this shared fight. And there was a fear in DC at the time. I mean, those couple of years after the anthrax attacks mm-hmm. and you know the, the DC sniper, it was a really scary time, but everyone was together. And, and January 6th felt like a of an exclamation point at the end of a very, very dark sentence that that unity had finally been completely sort of broken in this one violent act. It almost sounds foolishly cinematic to describe it the way I've described it, but that's that's how that felt. I am hopeful though that we're kind of maybe that's the bottom. Maybe that's the bottom of the bottom. And we're in a in a build back phase democratically, but I think it's going to take a lot of years. I think it's going to be a very long, hard fight. I agree with you. Um, I think your cinematic image is is a is a real, is not just cinematic. I think it's a, the image that I take away is like one would might have hoped that after your house has been breached, that that you all kind of bring draw together and go, we have an issue in our country, and it involves domestic terrorism, and they almost tried to kill us, some of us more than others, but still, we should band together. And that was, they spent about two hours doing that on the floor. And that was that. Very, very disheartening. I have two disheartening notes, but first we do have to take a break for (laughs) our... (laughs) Warning, everyone, we're going to a darker place. But first... So if you've paid extra to go to that dark place as a member of the Deep State Radio Network, this is your chance. Um, And you can always become a member and come to the dark place with us. $5 a month. I know everybody's little purses are a little tight right now, but if you can do it, you can be um, privy to these uh, great conversations and also watch Miles Learns to Bake Cookies. Thank you all for joining us on the Secret Life of Cookies podcast. Please follow Miles on Twitter. And for the recipe and snarky commentary about politics for me, join me at marissarodecup.substack.com. And thank you and have a good week. 